This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com slash ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. Hi, I'm Bill Simone, and you're listening to Light Source. And welcome to episode 67 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, the website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer and image inspector with iStockphoto.com. Now, on today's episode, we have with us photographer Bill Simone, and you can check out his work at BillSimonePhotography.com. That's B I L L S I M. O-N-E photography.com. Bill has some amazing work. He has some great portraiture and some amazing post-processing. He does a lot of uh, HDR work. He has a blog that's attached to his website as well that links off to his main photography studio, which is Simone and Associates, where he and uh, a couple other photographers do their work. But his blog is also really good to check out because he does a lot of kind of what he talks about with us on the show. He he pulls the curtain back and shows you exactly what he does. Uh, Some people have asked about his layers on his photos and what's involved with some of these complex post-processing. And he has really documented it for everyone and talks about it on the show as well, exactly what he does to produce some of these really cool images. It's really great that he actually shares with us, and I think it's going to be an exciting interview for everyone. Absolutely. We probably should apologize a little bit for the lateness of this episode. I'm starting to get hate mail, man. (laughs) Well, it is summertime, and you just got back from the beach. I'm getting ready to leave for the beach, so I mean, it is... And you were in Toronto? I was in Toronto on a photo weekend, so um, there's there's been a couple trips that have been keeping us away from the, the microphone, but we are back. We haven't pod faded. We're still here. Absolutely. We've got a bunch of great interviews coming up, so uh, nobody panic. <laughs> <laughs> it, we've actually been, this is at the tail end of an evening of interviews, and that's plural, so we, we do have a couple that are coming out. We've heard them. We know what they sound like. They're really good information, so you guys can look for those coming on a regular basis. We won't abandon you this summer. There has been some some interesting news, you know, while we were away, like new Nikon cameras and all sorts of stuff like that. Did you see the uh, the Phase One camera? It's like every time they announce a new camera, they <laughs> they double the resolution of these things. It's crazy. I know, I, and that's the type of camera that I say to myself is like, am I getting the new car or am I getting the new camera? <laughs> it might be new house with this one. It's was it fifty <laughs> megapixel? It is 50 megapixels. I didn't even bother to look at a price on it because I, I know it's so far out of what I consider to be realistic. They didn't announce the price. That's how, how high it's going to get. It's like in the back of the magazine where it says call for price. You know, you know exactly. it's going to be, if you have to have a conversation just to find out the price, it's too expensive. I, I probably can't even afford the down payment on that camera. Right. So I'll stick with my 35 millimeter that that does a wonderful job. So no doubt. Uh, but aside from that, like you had said, there was a rumor about a new, a new Nikon that was coming out. And then that actually turned around and I had seen a bunch of places where it said it, it is, it's not, it's a fake, it's a Photoshop. And, and then they turned around and announced it for real. Yeah. The D 700. So I don't even have the specs on it, but I'm sure it's going to be awesome. I know all my Nikon friends at work are just drooling and, you know, they're talking about having to upgrade now because, you know, <laughs> their, their stuff is so antiquated, which, which I just find amusing, but you know. Yeah. Well, we all go through that. 
I, I try to not read the tech sites just because I'm I'm so happy with what I have right now that I don't feel like I need to upgrade. So I'm doing my best to avoid as much news as possible in that arena. But just stay in your happy place, Ed. I, I am in my happy place. <laughs> I, I like happy place. Well, you sent me a couple of great videos, too, that we absolutely have to share with our audience. And, and I'd seen the one. The first one was the 101 Photoshop Tip Rap Song. <laughs> the Photo Geek Raps video is what it's called. It's actually Deke Pod, D-E-K-E, from Photoshop Guru, Deke McClelland. Um, if anyone has gotten any of the Total Training videos in the past, he was the guy behind the, the Photoshop series on the Total Training videos. And he's done a lot of work with uh, Peach Pit and O'Reilly Press, authored a number of different uh, Photoshop tutorials and training and uh, all kinds of stuff. And you may have even seen one Photoshop user TV. Uh, Deke is a great guy, a good friend of mine. And watching this video, Deke's crazy. He is crazy. He did a great job. He's really creative. <laughs> and I don't even know how to explain it other than just to let people know they have to watch the video. We'll put a link in our show notes so you can check it out for sure. One of the other things that's kind of new that's recently come out is uh, one of our favorite companies that does photo products is Moo, and that's Moo.com, M-O-O. And they've, for the longest time, have had these really cool little mini cards, they've called them. It's basically like a business card that's sliced in half. And they're really cool. I like them. They're really nice little things to hand out. But my biggest problem has been with them is they're unconventional. Right. And when you get one of them, they're very cool, but it's like, what do I do with this thing? <laughs> exactly. I have some like laying in the bottom of my camera bag from other friends and stuff. You don't really have a place to put them. Well, the new thing they've come out with is business cards, and they are printed exactly the same way as the mini cards are. They are printed on recycled paper and then laminated, and they have a very unique feel to them. If, if you've never done any of the Moo cards at all, they almost have a very plastic-like feel to them. Really sturdy uh, little things. They're very sturdy, and the business cards are made exactly the same way. They have a really good feel to them. The printing is amazing. I actually have a set of them. Just got my new iStock business cards, and they were actually printed through Moo. Currently, the pricing is 50 business cards is $21.99, and then shipping's on top of that. But the really great thing about when you order these is you can order them with up to 50 different images on the front side of them, and then you can either use a template or you can design your own online design your own backside of your, your the information part of your card but because you can use up to 50 different images you can have basically a mini portfolio in your pocket right and they come packaged in this really cool little box it looks like a, a deck of cards kind of playing cards they have a really cool feel to them so definitely check those out because they are worth ordering absolutely one last little news item. If you're not subscribed to Chase Jarvis's uh, video podcast on iTunes, you've missed something very cool. He did a quick little interview with a guy who does a business. It's called Digital Capture Systems. And he has a, well, it's called the Uber van, basically. And it is uh, one of the big tall stand-up vans that you can, I think it's called a Dodge Sprinter. Inside of it, it is decked out with basically a mobile digital capture studio. It has like two full Mac Pro with 30-inch cinema displays and loads of backup and place for client seating and you know, large displays that you can put in for show client work or have a client area, have a wardrobe area. And I believe the whole thing was supposedly powered off of solar that sits on the roof as well. They do have solar panels, yeah, to help with power supply. In short, like I absolutely want this van. <laughs> I totally want it would the just van be, too. <laughs> He had raid storage, everything. It's just... It would be really nice to have. I mean, I could park it out in front of my house and just be happy <laughs> just hanging out in there. 
Well, it's a wonderful business idea, especially in a photo intensive area that, that chases from them. I and there's a ton of photographers in that area. And actually, we have a couple coming up from future interviews of friends of Chase's. It's definitely a great business model for the guy. And it's it's worth checking out, even if you wanted to just try and kind of like pimp out your car a little bit and make it fun for digital capture. So you can check you that go. out at Chase Jarvis or on iTunes. And we should probably work on getting into the interview with Bill Simone and check out what he has to say. It'll work. edition of Light Source, we have with us this evening Bill Simone of Simone Associates. He is a photographer that's local to us. Uh, we appreciate you stopping by, Bill. Uh, you have some amazing work, and uh, it's, it's a great to get a chance to speak with you. Thank you. It's great to speak with you guys, too. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got started with photography. Actually, my parents bought me a 35 millimeter camera in my senior year in high school, and the intention there was that I would be able to take pictures of my friends and things I was doing when I went away to college, and I sort of took to it pretty naturally. Didn't go away to college, started working at a local high school portrait studio my first summer out of high school. I mean, literally like the next week after I graduated. And I was I was in the back printing the wallet and five by seven packages for seniors. That was my first job in photography. And I just went through a series of jobs, photographic and non-photographic, and ultimately a few years later tried going into business as a photographer and did a little bit of work, failed, you know, got mm-hmm. jobs again, tried business again, same deal. And then this is really the third attempt at, at business, and this one's working. Wow. So. So persistence is the key there. <laughs> that's, you know? the, that's the moral <laughs> of the story, right? Yeah, truly. Right now you do, I mean, we'll talk a, a lot more, I hope, about what kind of work you do now, but did you always do kind of the commercial stuff or were you doing portraits and things like my, my first real love in photography was, you know, where I really started to do anything that would be called studio work was definitely people. I really enjoyed portraiture and tried to do that but I never was really successful with that. One day I had the occasion to photograph a kit for knee implants by a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, and I took it to my small second floor studio that I was renting, and I did a tabletop photograph of it, and I really had a great time doing that. And I remember to this day thinking to myself, I, you know, I, I really wonder if anyone would pay me to do that. And I started to do a lot of tabletop work then, and that was really, I mean, the first big chunk of my career was food, product illustration, still life. Wow. Did a ton of long time of tabletop work, moved completely away from people. But I've always liked people, so now I'm, I really have decided to make a turn and try to rekindle photographing people. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. So you have a, a deep background in product photography. Would you say that that's affected how you approach your portraiture and stuff now? Like what, what, is, what kind uh, of crosses over for you? I'll tell you what, I mean, I, I've said this to a million people, you know, young people, students uh, that I come across, I think the best experience in the world to really learn about the subtleties and nuances of lighting are on in tabletop photography, without a doubt. I mean, you just, you, you know, you really, first of all, you have an opportunity to, to sort of play endlessly. I mean, I can remember burning through 4x5 and 8x10 Polaroids like crazy back <laughs> in those days, all, all big view camera work. Wow, um, and it was really fun, and and you you know you really had to take your time and look at things and study things carefully and make solid decisions before you push the button because eight by ten sheets of Polaroid and eight by ten sheets of film were an expense. I sure. mean, it was a true expense. You know, unlike today working digitally, where 
and you just you know you want to try something, you try it. It's really no no big deal. But boy, back in those days, you spent a lot of time looking through the camera and changing subtle things before you decided to push the button. So it was a really great experience, and I think I really learned a lot about lighting. And I did a lot of work in tabletop and still life was basically single source illumination. So uh, you know, huh. I mean, it's it's really unbelievable how beautiful a photograph you can make with one source of light. And you learn a lot there, too, about subtlety. So I think a lot of it has carried over. You know, the biggest thing is, is that learning that your best tool is your eyes in terms of lighting. Get all the gadgets in the world, but really looking at light and understanding light, uh, that's the biggest thing that carried over. And I think you get that from still life photography. Now, when you're still doing still life, particularly I'm talking about on your website currently, for people following along at home, it would be BillSimonePhotography.com. BillSimonePhotography.com is kind of the stuff that's near and dear to my heart personally at this moment in time, and that could change in the next six months. I also have www.SimoneAssociates.com, which is more kind of representative of the studio as a whole. There are two other photographers shooting at Simone Associates. Both of them are represented on SimoneAssociates.com. Both of them are absolutely stellar photographers. I'm proud of both of them, um, Art Claggett and Pammy Shirk. So your um, listeners could certainly take the time to check out their portfolios online. They do some really beautiful work also. Okay. I mean, so that's if people want to follow along, they can do that at that address. But we're still talking about the one light source for a lot of your still work. Do you tend to still keep that a lot or do you do you introduce more lights into what you're working with now? I think, you know, depending upon the subject matter, I think it can go either way. I mean, if, if, I, if I have a very elegant food shot in front of me, I, stay, I, I may still opt to light that with a single source and maybe just some small reflectors. Um, I just came off a week of shooting for a, a big cutlery manufacturer last week five days, food in the photographs, all kinds of stuff like that. And that was really fun and challenging. Um, those reflective metals are always really a blast to, to try to get to look really nice. And in that instance, you know, technically speaking, I, I was using two and three sources of light on those photographs to sort of get things shaped. So it really depends on the subject matter. I mean, I'm not like a, I do everything with one light source and that's it kind of person. I kind of try to look at things and bring to the table what I think it should have, what that photograph's asking me for. Well, you definitely do an excellent job of that. Thank you. I mean, light is the whole deal with photography, you know. You have to learn to recognize beautiful light and then in turn learn how to create it. In terms of your approach to an image, do you typically have that image kind of in your head before you get into the studio and begin setting things up? Or do you see what happens as you go along? Well, you know, working as a commercial photographer, I mean, sometimes you're, you're brought very strict layouts and they get done pretty tight. To what you're looking at. Other times you're really placed in a situation where it's totally wide open and so it really covers a lot of ground. I try even on the strictest of client supplied layouts. I, I always feel it's my responsibility to try to bring something to the table that is unexpected or a great surprise. Some of your own creativity. Yeah, something. You know, you want to bring something to the party, not just sort of boringly mimic the layout, but right. try to make something happen. That's very cool. Well, if you look through your portfolio for more than a few clicks, one of the things that jumps out is, first of all, you're terrific at post-processing. So I want to talk about that in a couple of minutes. But it seems that you also use HDR in a number of shots. Is that something that you find yourself doing quite a bit? Definitely. I mean, I, I love to mess around with HDR. And I, I like to use that approach to create a lot of the backgrounds that I'm sliding in behind some of these people subjects. 
I had written up a thing that was on our blog a while back about a photograph I made of a girl that's a boxer. And I photographed this really funky old warehouse, you know, two weeks before her, and then photographed her in the studio and put the two of them together. And, and, and I'm quite proud of it. I think it's a pretty nice result. That's so. a great shot. So it's been everything between the two subjects there, the background and, and the girl in the foreground, created two, three weeks apart, to other times I will literally set a shot up with a subject in an environment, light them, photograph them, take everything away, relight the scene behind them, and then produce an HDR and then bring the two of those back together for the final shot because that just puts this really unique quality on the background that you can't really achieve or uh, I don't think you can achieve just by lighting it as a single shot. So I think it's a pretty cool way to get those two looks together. But it absolutely adds a lot of depth and I think surreal mm -hmm. feel to a lot of your images. Now, you do a great job on your blog, by the way, of explaining a couple of these images that you put together as composites, and I, I think that's a terrific resource, and we'll point people to that for sure, but could you just walk our listeners through your approach to that image and how, how you would start and how you would set up for an HDR to get a good one? That really has become a pretty straightforward process. That background that's behind the girl, that's the boxer, I mean, when I went to that warehouse that day, I bet I came out of there with 15 really cool backgrounds, so... I'm just walking around an environment like that with a Canon Mark II on a little carbon fiber tripod. So it's real light, easy to manage. It has the electronic shutter release on it. I think most of those, uh, like that background and most of the ones that day, I think I had the 16 to, I don't know, zoom lens, 16 to something, super wide. So I, I just walk around with that and find my camera position and then shoot a huge range of exposures all the way from like two stops over all the way down to two, maybe even three stops under, always altering it with the shutter speed so that the f-stop remains constant and therefore focuses and shifting. I make sure all the auto stuff is off on the camera. Right. I don't want, you know, I don't want any automatic white balances or any of that stuff happening. I want to make sure the autofocus is off so when I'm tapping that shutter, it's not bouncing around. Everything's just locked down, make this range of exposures. I bring them back to my studio and info. I'm still working with CS2 on my on main machine. I have CS3 on another machine. And I, um, so in CS2, I use the merged HDR function and then come out of that and I use Photomatics as a plug-in that goes into Photoshop to do the tone mapping part of it. So I'll go through that, bring the tone mapped image into Photoshop and curves, contrast adjustment. I very much like to use There's a set of luminosity masks that can be downloaded from a guy's website named Tony Kuiper, K-U-Y-P-E-R. And they're really nice. They, he has the whole action set up to automatically isolate certain tonal areas of the image. So you can isolate, like, mid-tones, expanded mid-tones, okay. darks, very darks. And then I go about isolating those areas of the image and working them specifically and separately and to get the contrast that I want. And I like to use hue saturation layers set to soft light seems to be a really nice contrast improvement for those images. So that's pretty much it. That's great. I appreciate you sharing your process with us. I know a lot of people are going to be inspired by looking at your work. And Well, that's cool. I've had a number of opportunities throughout my career to teach, and I've always enjoyed that. I like to talk to people that are interested in photography, always. Well, when you're doing these shots where you're going to do the background completely separately from your subject, what are some of the considerations that you have to go through in your head? Uh, I like to look for, first off, just a really cool scene. That's the first thing I'm looking for is just something that absolutely inspires me the way it looks. The other thing I'm looking for a lot is converging lines. I like to see 
something that's receding towards the background because that pole is going to be really nice when you put a subject in front of it, you know? Right. So like hallways and long rooms are really nice where, you know, where the floor and the, the lines of the wall and the lines of the ceiling are all going to recede toward a, towards a vanishing point. That seems to create a really nice background as opposed to just some flat wall surface, right. although I've had some success with that too. But So I'm looking for that, and I also like to see some light sources in the picture, whether it be a light bulb or a window or uh, something going on back there, because ultimately part of the whole thing that makes those photos neat to look at, I think, that are composited together is having light sources in the background picture and then supplying the right amount of rim light to the subject so it starts to give the illusion that they're catching light from those sources in the background. So that helps you make the image more realistic because some of the light's interacting almost. From, yeah, you know. I mean, you know, as a viewer, if you look at that picture and you see a yellow light bulb hanging in the background and then you photograph the subject and put a little warm rim light on the right side of them, that, that's going to all tie together pretty nicely and help your illusion. And that makes a lot of sense. Is it tricky masking people and hair and, and things like that when you're going to composite? I use Virtus Fluid Mask. I've tried tons of different masking programs. I used to pull people's hair strictly in Photoshop with channel masking and stuff like that, but I would always try different masking software, and one day I tried Virtus Fluid Mask, and it's, uh, it's just the nicest one I've ever used. I really like it. I mean, that's everyone that wants to mess around with masking something should definitely take a look at that software. But I find that to be really useful for hair and generally plucking somebody off a background pretty quickly. But, you know, you still ultimately, when you get back into Photoshop, you just have to do a lot of detail work on the edges of the body and, and certain areas uh, using any means that you can, path tool, layer mask, anything that you have to to get the job done. But the most important thing, I think, is photographing the subject in the correct way so that they come off the background you shot them on easily and composite into your new background nicely because it, it isn't all in the masking. I mean, some of these images, like if you were to take that boxer girl off of that background and put her on white, you might look at that and probably say that's the worst masking job I've ever seen. Oh. <laughs> but because she's, you know, because she's sitting on a, on a dark background and was photographed against black, it's kind of like some areas become self-masked, if you know what I mean. Like the hair will sit on that background way nicer than it's going to sit on a light background. Right. So conversely, if I know I'm going to composite over a light background, I will then be careful to photograph that person's hair against a light background. You're looking at it way ahead of time and knowing where you're going to go with this. And that is what makes the masking easy. Otherwise, you're fighting it every step of the way. Now, when you're in a situation where you're shooting someone against a dark background, you actually have some really good setup shots of the boxer one ahead of time, and it looks like your space that you're shooting that person in is in a fairly white space, but you have brought in some black around them. Do yes. you tend to do things like that to help swallow up that light so the your white walls aren't reflecting it? I will do that or even at times use the white walls if I see that they're that they're going to help the situation but it's you fill with reflectors and you negative fill with black panels where and as needed to create the shape sure but those you know one of the biggest things about those composites and it's it's easy to see if you look across them is the right quality and character of rim light 
that light on the outside edge of the body when you drop that person into a background that has light sources or some sense of luminance about it, whether you see a light source or just a light source is implied by the direction of light that's in the room, that's going to feel really good if that person has rim light on them because you would expect to see that. So that's really the big key there, I think. Now, in a lot of your images, I do notice that you, you use a fair amount of rim lights on things. Now, what sort of light modifiers are you using on those? Are you tending to use a, a fairly small reflector to get a higher contrast light out of it? Again, I am assume this varies based on the subject that you're trying to shoot. But, I mean, what, how do you typically approach it? I have used everything from a standard flash head with a 7-inch reflector to that gridded to really narrow things down if I'm in a, a certain type of space that I can't control the, the reflected light as well as I might be able to in my studio, like a smaller office space or something like that. I might grid those lights all the way up to, I have five foot by 10 foot Shamira F2 bank lights in my studio, three of them. Two of them are standing vertically on wheels and another one is kind of mounted horizontally up on Matthew's uh, high roller stands. And, and I will often use those standing 5 foot by 10 foot light sources as rim light, especially if I'm photographing women or something maybe that I just want to have a little bit softer highlight because that large light source in a rim lit position will sort of tend to make the skin glow more. If you've ever noticed one of the things that, at least in my opinion, I find distracting about rim lights used in a certain way is if that rim light is too hard and you could get a long shadow from the ear or a shadow from the collar of a shirt or something like that. Uh, I, I don't always find that so pleasant to my eye, so oftentimes I'll use a larger, softer source for a rim light. But I, sometimes I use really small ones to get a sharper, harder sort of hit there. But boy, for women and, and softer subjects, those big soft sources in a rim light position just make a beautiful sort of glowing highlight on their cheekbone or something like that. It's really can be, can be quite pretty. So I decide on the size of that source really based on the character of the subject. Okay. And I guess the same kind of thinking would affect your key lights in the selection of that as well? I use a beauty dish a lot with women and with men too, just because it produces a really unique sort of character of light. It kind of falls off when you get at the right distance from the subject and you're in sort of its sweet spot, I would say, it, it falls off really nicely at the edges of the body. So when it falls off nicely at the edges of the body, it kind of sets up a really nice situation for rim lighting because even if you put it in a sort of, you know, say you're photographing a woman and you put it in a classic butterfly lighting position right over the camera lens, it will create this nice illumination in the triangular portion of the face, but it'll fall off pretty good off towards the ears and stuff. Well, that sets up a great situation for rim lighting because rim lighting tends to show pretty nicely in shadowed areas. It's a little more difficult to get a rim light to look good on, on kind of the high, an already lit side of the face. That's a delicate balance there. But I do use a lot of soft lights. I'm not a real big fan of super hard lighting for the key light on a face, although you look back at the classic Hollywood portraits, they used some pretty darn sharp right. focusing spotlights, but they also diffuse stuff pretty heavily over the camera lens. So, And they were really working before you know the invention of what we now think of as the soft box. Right. They just had a different set of tools back then in the, in the way they used them. So, But I like soft light mostly for people's faces. 
It's interesting that you mentioned the beauty dish because we've asked our past couple of guests about them and we don't find a whole lot of people that use them heavily. So what you described sounds really interesting to me. We haven't experimented much with them at all. It's a pretty neat device because you've got this plate, if you will, mounted in the center of it that is like milk white glass or plexiglass and that's going over top of the flash head. So you have a sort of hot spot in the center and then it bounces out around that to the reflector itself. So it's sort of naturally hot in the center, but it produces, I swear, like I think of it like a cone of light in a sense. There's a definite sweet spot there in terms of distance from the subject. If you back that light too far away from the subject, it loses all of its magic. It has to work within a certain distance to the subject's face to really look its best. So pretty cool piece of equipment, I think. With all these different light sources, I have to ask, are you someone who's very picky about metering, or do you kind of see what it looks like on the back of the camera or on your laptop as you go along? Well, it's interesting you ask that, because I was a photographer eight, ten years ago shooting 8 by 10 transparency tabletop work. We lived and died by a good flash meter, and we're very particular about keeping them calibrated and measuring bellows extension accurately, because once again, this goes back to that whole thing of, you know, you just didn't burn big sheets of Polaroid and film right. like that back then. You, you really had to think about things. Nowadays, you know, days, days, days can go by that I won't even turn a light meter on. <laughs> it's just become so intuitive and so easy to just look at the computer screen and, and tweak things endlessly till you get them exactly the way you want them. It's really a, an incredible intuitive process now. Interactive would be a better word. Uh, you know, the way you can see your results. And I should add to that, we're working in this studio with well-calibrated Apple cinema display monitors. There, We calibrate them regularly. It's unbelievable to me to this day. I can, uh, you know, return from press run with a press sheet and put it in the viewing box in my office here and bring the original Photoshop file up. And it's, it's quite remarkable how true it stays through the process, which is wow. unbelievable. If you ever worked in the days of a transparency on a light table, going to a color separation and then a proof and trying to maintain that color fidelity was a real fight. It really was. Right. So when you're shooting, you actually shoot tethered and you have the instant feedback there on your monitor? Yeah, I shoot tethered a lot. Yeah. I mean, even I even have a, a smaller iMac that's also calibrated that I take with me on location. For example, we just did two days this week shooting a pretty substantial kitchen set that was built in the warehouse of this high-end kitchen manufacturer. So we were down there in their warehouse with a Mac workstation that's been calibrated, tethered to a 4x5 with a digital back on it. And that's how we worked that whole job for two days. And it's, it's really magnificent. The subtlety that you can do in addressing and refining your lighting is it's really awesome. It really is. Now, for people who are interested in learning how to shoot tethered and check your values and things like that on a laptop or in software, like do you use Lightroom or Aperture or... Uh, well, I shoot with, with Phase 1 backs okay. primarily. Right. Um, I do own a, you know, a Canon 1DS like I described earlier. I actually own a couple of them that I use for things like you know, HDRs and stuff like that. And also, if I'm doing anything that involves relatively fast-moving people photography, I would choose that camera. But 
truly 90 plus percent of my work I'm shooting with phase one digital backs and, and, and I use Capture One software which is manufactured by phase one so that's really where I'm doing most of the stuff there in terms of viewing the histogram, checking you know, RGB and CMYK values. The entire studio we're an ICC color managed shop top to bottom so we're very much into ICC profiles so we can be looking at a photograph that we've shot on the monitor change the profile to a profile supplied by a printer or even photoshops like US sheet fed coded version 2 CMYK profile and be able to really understand what's going to happen to the photograph what colors are out of gamut is there anything we can do to to improve that at that moment in time or oh so you're actually whatever. doing these checks while you're shooting in case there's something that you think you could do to anything that we might be able to do. Like Capture One software has a really interesting little feature in it called a color editor. So you can, say you're taking a photograph of a bowl of vegetable soup or you're doing a food shot and, and it has tomatoes in it and the tomatoes were not all that great at this moment in time. They're sort of weak in color and orangey rather than a nice red. Well, you can sit down with Capture One, you can go into color editor you can use a, a range device and isolate the reds and you can add saturation to the reds and create a custom profile at that moment in time that you can assign in the software and start shooting and now your your tomatoes look more red. Oh, wow. You can do that in, in a matter of minutes while you're on. Get the shot up on the screen, go into color editor, isolate that range of color. It's very similar to the color range tool in Photoshop if you've ever right. used that and isolate the red, being aware, of course, if there's any other reds in the photo, they're going to come along with it. Right. But a lot of times you can do something with that. And that's a pretty neat tool. It's really nice software. Have you guys ever used Capture One software at all? Um, I've just seen some demos of it. Have you used it, Ed? Yeah, I had played with uh, when they had the beta out for it recently. I was working with that for a while, and then I, I kept floating back and forth between Lightroom and Capture One and tried to figure out which route I was going to go. And yeah, I had finally decided that I was going to invest my time in Lightroom just because of it seemed like it was more of everything what I needed out of a an application. Yeah, certainly, I, I mean, I think Lightroom is really cool. I mean, it, and it it gives you all the raw controls that that you have with Capture One, and I think probably even is maybe a little bit above it in terms of organizational abilities and things like that. But, you know, it's all what you start working with and right. fall into a comfort zone with, really. And I haven't gotten to the point of doing remote capture in the studio on a regular basis, so that's mm -hmm. kind of why I shied away from the, the whole capture yeah. one thing to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, it's really great if, if you're shooting tethered. And what an incredible thing to be working on, on a photograph with an, a large monitor in front of you that's right. calibrated. It's, it's really kind of mind-boggling. Do you find that your clients end up getting more involved in the process because of the technology nowadays? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I work with people that are really into it and just really enjoy all, all that stuff. And, and often, you know, a lot of the designers, art directors that I work with, you know, they're Photoshop heads themselves, and, and it's it's really a lot of fun. I mean, anytime that I get around somebody else that works in Photoshop, my first instinct is I want to just sit down and show them things and have them show me things because right. there's always something that you can learn from somebody because it's such a giant tool bag and, and everybody does things differently. So that's always a lot of fun. And then there's clients that could just care less about the whole thing. You know what I mean? They, they really just want to sit there and, and like the picture or not like the picture. And they don't really care a whole lot how you arrive at it in terms of the electronics of it, the software part of it. So it goes both directions. Well, shifting gears a little here real quickly on your website, you have a, a segment called places and 
you've done a number of, I guess you could call them architectural photography. Do you approach lighting those scenes any differently than you would a, a person, or are these mostly found lighting situations as to how they I, I exist naturally? I don't have my website up in front of me, but if I'm not mistaken, I don't think there's a photograph in that place, a segment that is really lit in any way, so to speak of. I mean, I might have one or two in there where I had a dark doorway or something that I would tuck a flash unit into, but for the most part, those are all HDRs done by the light that was existing at the time. I shot a job last year, a really beautiful job for a, one of the bigger log home manufacturers. This was like a large, beautiful brochure and marketing materials and ads, and, and we did the entire job was like HDR stuff. The, the art director that was doing this piece saw this stuff I had been doing with these rooms and really thought it was cool, and he lives in a log home. Wow. And I went out to his place with a camera, and I shot his living room and showed him the result, and we did this entire piece. Now, I did find situations where I would tuck a flash unit in somewhere to add a little trail of light coming out of a doorway or something like that to spice things up. And then if I was making 15 exposures of that HDR scene, I would just fire it off during the five or six exposures that were clustered around what we might think of as normal. Okay. You know what I mean? So I'd fire it off there and let it out on the extreme ends and then it would just show up as a neat little path of light coming out of a doorway or on a wall behind a corner or whatever just looking at it to make sure that it's got some spice where it needs it but mostly there the light that was there the log homes it was so cool because they're really by nature people that build these big log homes they have lots of big windows in them so they, they like that whole connection with the outdoors and what a beautiful scenario for lighting that sounds great Kind of along those same lines, also on your website, you have a really cool project called The Hometown Show. Yeah. I, I recognize a lot of these as places that are probably very close to here. <laughs> I think almost all of that has occurred within walking distance of my studio. But the whole thing there was I became interested in panoramas, and I started to mess around with Photoshop's stitching function. Oh, right. And I, so I started to mess around with panoramas and I nailed down all of the technical parts of it so that I could go out with a cannon mounted on a tripod. I had done some test shooting to determine the rear nodal point of the lens because the critical thing, if you want to really do panoramas and crank them out with some efficiency, you have to rotate the camera on or as near as you can get to the rear nodal point of the lens. So most cameras, if you turn them, turn your Canon or your Nikon over, you got that tripod socket that is pretty close to the film plane right. of the camera. And that's the wrong point to rotate the camera on. The software will have a difficult time stitching the photograph together if you rotate on that point. So you have to pick a lens and find the rear nodal point and manufacture yourself or whatever, or go buy one of those special tripod heads, which I wasn't really interested in doing. So I just made <laughs> myself a plate that slid the camera back the right distance and just tested, tested, tested till I hit this point where I knew exactly how to set the tripod up and where to put the camera and then crank off five pictures, 180, you know, looking all the way to my left, one, two, straight ahead, three, four, five, looking all the way to my right and got it all working that I could just set that tripod up, crank off five exposures, bang, 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 bring them back, load them in the software and boom, they'd stitch together perfectly. 
Now, so, does it make that big of a difference that you're at the nodal point versus nodal point, the film point? Yeah, it, it really makes... Well, let me say this. I moved from Photoshop to a freestanding application named RealViz Stitcher. I moved on to that for stitching. That software is considerably more sophisticated than Photoshop's function, and it will manage in most instances to pull it together, even if you've screwed up and not rotated on the rear nodal point of the lens, it'll, it'll, it'll work it out. But if you do, if you do work it out and you do get that camera rotating at the right point, they just fall together unbelievably easily. You just wow. like basically turn the software on, go chase down the folder that the five pictures exist in, hit the button and it stitches them together. Uh, it's really cool. And it does it with your raw files, which is oh wow, really kind of neat. So, you know, I got to this whole point where I had this whole thing figured out, and I said, okay, what do I want to do with this now? You know, everybody that messes around with panoramas seems to take pictures of, you know, cityscapes or vistas or big landscapes, and I just really wasn't interested in doing that. went out for a walk one day downtown here out my studio door, and I ran into two kind of young punks that are hanging out in the doorway of the bank, it's one of the shots that's in that show. And I said, hey, you know, why don't you guys let me uh, take your picture? Go stand right there. And I said, I mean, I had the process so darn refined at this point that I could chat with them while I set the camera up, crank off my five exposures, and thanks, guys, see you later. And, I, and every, <laughs> I think the most interesting and compelling thing about those photographs, if anyone takes the time to look at them on my website, is to keep this in mind that every one of those, first of all, is, is five exposures, five frames stitched together, and every one of them is a one-off. I mean, I would ask the people if I could take their picture. I would pretty much allow them to pose themselves with a little bit of coaxing from me <laughs> here and there. I would shoot five frames, and I would say goodbye. That's great. So none of them were like, you know, hold still and let me do it again and let me do it again. They're all once and done. And I think that's a pretty remarkable thing. I think that's one of the things that gives them the weird quality that they have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, back, yeah. back in the days of the, the daguerreotype and all that, you know, you see those sepia tone portraits of people and they have a certain eerie quality about them because the subject had to stand still for a minute to get their picture taken or 30 seconds or something so people sort of gathered themselves and assumed a pose and and that's what gives them their weird quality and i think a little bit of that happened with these pictures because there i am with my tripod and i'm t talking to them and setting it up and they are kind of getting themselves ready right <laughs> And then I explain this whole thing to them that I'm going to take five pictures and put them together. And I say, you can't move. If you move in between my five frames, you'll screw the thing up. So they sort of get themselves ready and then they get their picture taken. Oh, and great. it really imparts an interesting look, I think, to the pictures. I think that really comes through on a lot of them. What a fun project, though. So I just go out for a walk every day after work. And whoever I ran into, I'd take their picture. That's great. That's too cool. I want to go for a walk with you. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> you guys should come down to my place and see it. I mean, you're not that far away. Absolutely. Really. No, not at all. I think you'd enjoy it. I think you'd enjoy it. Absolutely. Just for the gearheads that we have in our audience, I'm curious, having been through all the different types of photography that you've been through and, and all the different lighting throughout the years, what kind of lighting equipment do you find yourself using most often? Well, I'll tell you, I, I very early in the beginning of this studio, I bought Comet flash equipment, and I've pretty much stayed with that throughout my career. I mean, we have an enormous amount of Comet 
flash equipment in the studio, probably on the order of 20 or so, 2,400 watt second power packs, flash heads all over the place, a lot of stuff. It's great equipment. It's really rugged. You can beat it up. It, it goes and goes and goes. You can just get it repaired, and it's, it's just really great stuff. And it's been the workhorse, and it's been very reliable. And I also have a nice little Bogan battery uh, I think it's called Explorer. It's a battery pack so that I can take a flash unit out in the middle of a cornfield if I want to and take a picture with this battery-operated power pack. So I have those for certain situations on location, but I don't use them much in the studio because I have all this common equipment. The truth for your gearheads is, is that it really doesn't matter what brand you use. They're all kind of doing the same thing, really. It's how you use them. Right. That's what everybody says at the end. <laughs> really, it, it's, you know, it's a pretty basic thing, but I I think sometimes people get caught up in the magic of equipment. I remember I was teaching a community college course in photography a number of years ago, and that went on for a couple of semesters. And, and the, the last week of each class, when we were wrapping things up, we had the last class in, in, in the studio here, and I would kind of show these guys whatever they wanted to see. I sort of left it up to them. And, and the one year I had a couple students in there that were like, geez, if we had all the equipment at our disposal that you have, we could really take cool pictures too. And I said, <laughs> well, you know, come on up. And I, I showed them how to turn everything on and how to work a view, everything. I mean, I, I held their hand through the taking of pictures. And at the end of that, I, I had prepared myself for this and I strung a bed sheet across a tabletop from a, a back ground pulled back to the edge of the table and I had a work lamp that I had bought at Lowe's <laughs> and I clamped that onto a boom and I took a picture of silverware with that and it was absolutely gorgeous. So, you know, it, what it really boils down to, I think, is I have all this really cool, fancy stuff and really what it does is it makes it faster and easier for me to arrive at my end result, but it doesn't produce the end result. That's a really great answer. You know I mean? Yeah. That's why I wanted to ask you that because I could sense that you have a great space and you have great equipment, but you have a really good feel for controlling light, which is really what it comes down to. It truly is the, the bottom line to the whole thing. If folks want to get a close up look at some of your photography, you, you mentioned before we began the interview that you have an upcoming show. I do actually. Yep. A lot of the offbeat portrait work and composite stuff and things that I've been doing over the last three to five years, I'm going to kind of gather it together and, and have a little bit of a show. I've sent out a ton of invitations to my mailing list. And so, you know, come on by if, if they're in the area. I'd really love to, to meet some of them. It should be a lot of fun. Free food and uh -oh. wine. <laughs> oh, now you've done it. <laughs> yeah, look out. <laughs> That's the only reason people go to those things, you know. <laughs> what are the facts that people need to know if they want to come and check that out? It's at a gallery in Lebanon named Lebanon Picture Frame and Fine Art that's located on the third floor of the new Farmer's Market on 8th Street. Uh, and it starts at 6 p.m. on Friday, July 11th. There you go. And just to add for the people that are listening, it's Lebanon, Pennsylvania. That is correct. That's right. Very good. Well, all you Pennsylvania guys can get out and... and yeah, come on. Come on by and check get out some Bill's free work. cheese. Get some free cheese. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Bill, I really appreciate the, the time you, you took to hang out with us and share some of your knowledge tonight. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Well, that's all we have for this episode of LightSource, the brightest podcast on the Internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other LightSource episodes at the website studiolighting.net. 
And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the Light Source Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash light source. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.